0: Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney.
1: Hi, this is Kate Delaney with your March Voices of Experience. Hope you're rocking and doing well so far in 2017. As a media consultant, I tell my clients to ask themselves every day, what aren't they leveraging? Part of that includes looking at the stories they tell about their business and, frankly, how they tell it. It's the power of story. We start off with two CSPs who really learned how to leverage their stories, thanks in part to joining the National Speakers Association. We're here with John Register, and congratulations, CSP. John, you made some big transitions and turns in your life, that's for sure. And I think there are many people that are part of the NSA crowd and speakers in general who get into the field for different reasons. So tell me about your transition and how that happened.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Kate. You know, I th- I think first of all why all speakers are coming here is because they're trying to find something that's going to get them a little further down the road. And for me, I was looking for something not even for my own lane. I was looking for something for, for somebody else with the United States Olympic Committee and trying to help athletes speak better, be on the platform better. So I found this thing called NSA, <laughs> and I came in. I said, like, oh, this is, this is like home. This is my family. And it transitioned me totally into what I call the new normal. And for me, that new normal started uh, back when I was running. the most you know we all go through transitions and change, but the most significant one that happened to me was being a world class athlete hurdler and having uh, an opportunity to com- compete in two Olympic trials in three different events and Then I went across a hurdle in the four meter hurdles, and I landed awkwardly and that landing dislocated my left knee, severed the artery behind the kneecap, and five days later. I was an amputee talk about okay i'm not going to olympic games anymore <laughs> so what do you do from there and how i came up with the new normal was really because i had some really tough days in the hospital and i had to, i was asking myself the question who am i now what's my identity am i still a husband to my wife is she gonna stick around or what about my boy he's five and a half years old this is you know is he still gonna look at me as his dad And in all those things, I was working with the United States Army. I still have a job, and all these questions that were going in my mind. And and my wife, Alice, wheeled me outside in the wheelchair. I was 40 pounds lighter, and they went to the playground. My son's playing on the swing set. and, uh, And I couldn't get out of that chair. And for the first time in my life, I felt disabled. Couldn't do anything for myself. Where do I go from here? And Alice saw me struggling through my tears, my sobs, my heavy sobs. I couldn't even get it out. And she said, you know what, John, we're going to get through this together. It's just our new normal. I said, as I thought about that and contemplated, John Jr., he jumps off the swing set, comes running over to me. Daddy, 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 jumps in my lap. It's okay, daddy, it's okay, daddy. And he had just validated me as his father. He just created his new normal. And I believe we're all going through some type of transition. Either we're coming out of something, we're going into something, or we're in something, right?
1: And so when you say the new normal, Mm -hmm. that's a, I mean, that's amazing your story other people as you say have different transitions so yes. you're trying to get people to open their minds and think that's just your new normal
2: yeah and the new normal is the new normal right so <laughs> it you can use in that in that space because when we as speakers are trying to prepare for the next audience we can't do the same material that we just did for the last one i love the olympic motto of Citius, altius fortius because those are the latin words that means swifter, higher, stronger, and those words are not written in their superlative form, in the highest form of the word. It's not swiftest, highest or strongest. And I, um, I liked it because if it was that, I could have a great performance, kill it on the stage, kill it in the hurdles, kill it in life on, on day one, and there's no place else to go on day two. <laughs> but because it's swifter, higher, stronger, I could be brilliant today, but even greater tomorrow.
1: And when you talk to audiences, do you talk about that, that just don't maybe settle or, or good is good, but isn't there something better?
2: Yeah, that's one focus of area. It's, 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 it's the press to that, it's the press forward. Uh, and it's nothing new. It's not rocket science. It's, you know, these are concepts that we know all the time, but sometimes hearing from a different voice, a different way inspires somebody to actually act on the information and that's what we do as speakers. We help people. We are the catalyst to that motivation. Uh, so I call myself a, more of an inspirational speaker because I believe before motivation, you have to somebody something has to cause you to want to do something. And I believe that something is the inspiration. Whether it's an act or it's a person or whatever, you saw something, and that insp- that, that action in turn result. And the re- result re inspires us or allow other people that are watching the process to catch the vision.
1: Do you remember the first speech you gave?
2: Yes. The new normal for you? What was well, it? no, that wasn't the new normal. It definitely wasn't that. Uh, I was talking to uh, Mark Sanborn and I think uh, was, uh, Scott and, uh, and uh, Friedman, and uh, we were talking just about our first speeches, right? <laughs> and I, it was to so the total Army involvement in recruiting. And I was just emceeing a program. Uh, and as I was on the stage, the principals... This program tries to put troops in boots, these 18-year-olds, and get them to join up for the Army. So I had this world-class athlete program. I had athletes that I was trying to just get them up there and talk. They were world-class athletes, a program I was once in. And when I got back home, the recruiters started calling my phone and saying, hey, um, these kids down here in was home of Louisiana <laughs> uh, are asking the principals, who is that one-legged dude? <laughs> and so I said well that was me and they said well, well do you, can you come back down here because recruiters aren't dummies they want to get back in the school and so I said yeah I can do that I'll come back down and I uh, said well how much do you charge for that and I said I'll get back to you on that question <laughs> And so that was my whole introduction to this world of speaking. I called Bonnie St. John, uh, and she's a, a phenomenal woman in this in this space. And she just walked me through. She's a member. She's a member of NSA, and she began to walk me through the entire process. Business gave me everything she had. I couldn't believe it. I was getting these speaker magazines, and all this. And this was way long time ago, and so I just kind of started down the path. But it was just it was just getting started. You know that was that was it.
1: Love it. Thank you. Thank you. We're here with Jared Bro, CSP. He is the crisis communications guru. And there is a lot of significance to this field, I think, for speakers and in general. It certainly has exploded in what we've seen that has happened with social media in probably the last decade or so. So, Jared, first of all, I think the big question is how did you get into this niche
3: i've got to go back to my very first nsa meeting 1998 a friend of mine convinced me to go check out nsa and glenna salisbury Was president and the person speaking at the meeting. And I was like everybody else in speaking, trying to figure out what am I going to do for a living? Yeah, I want to speak, I got a message, blah, 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 blah. But who wants to buy it? And her advice was very clear. And it was like, what do you know better than anything else in life? If you look at your entire life, what do you know better than anything else? And mine was TV news. I came out of TV news. That's my background. And from what Glenna said, I just took a ton of notes and started writing a workshop right there while listening to Glenna. That's the way I take notes at all the conferences, is I'm working on my next story as I'm listening to the speaker give me ideas. So it turned into a great workshop. I got my first, what I'll call, professional engagement. It was on a major international conference, but it was for no pay. But out of that, I picked up Best Buy, the U.S. Forest Service, and a conference company who then hired me relentlessly for 10 more years. And uh, Glenna came back to the chapter years later when I was president, and as I introduced her, I showed her the map, and I showed the audience the map of how I traced my first million dollars in speaking to Glenna Salisbury, because of the one thing that she said, for which for me is the power of NSA, so I know media, I develop some media workshop things, and then from there, so much of what's in the news is negative news. you know there's the happy side of news, which I do some work there, but the bulk of what I do is how to deal with bad news and and it's true for all corporations as well as for all speakers
1: right, so do you think when you first started to go down that lane that it would explode for you the way it did. <laughs>
3: It still hasn't exploded. Uh, the weird thing about crises is it's a—it's probably the crummiest niche you can be in. Uh, corporate executives are in denial that they need to prepare, and therefore they wait till it blows up. And then after it blowed up real good, the way we say down south, after it blowed up real good, then they want to get in a room and try to figure it out. And at the speed of social media, you don't have time to get a bunch of old guys in a room and fight over commas and semantics of sentences. But as far as you use the word lane, Jane Atkinson was the one who really helped me refine the lanes because I was doing video production, I was doing media training, I was doing employee communications. And, you know, over the years, I needed outside coaching, and Jane was the one I turned to for branding. So if you go to my website, it says, When it hits the fan, effective communications for critical times. That sums up what I do, and I, I've got to thank her for helping me get to that 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 more narrow lane and that better niche where the money gets better.
1: How about speakers and speakers when they use social media or their audiences use social media? It's so big, but it can get people into a lot. Of yeah, social trouble. media is a
3: nightmare. You know, I I was one of the contrarians, and I tend to be a contrarian and a, and a maverick in everything that I do. And when social media came out, I was kind of the John the Baptist with with you know camel hair in the desert, going no, no. <laughs> and now people are saying, oh, that's what Jared was talking about. This is a really dangerous place. And you know, you can say good morning to something, and ten thousand trolls will write the most vile things possible there. But for speakers, what we have to be very careful of is to keep. Uh, you know, I think you've got to separate your personal channel from your. Uh, corporate channel uh, you have to be aware of what your audience is posting on social media what they're saying about you you've got to be aware of the digital footprint you have to be aware of the videos you know somebody can sit in the audience and videotape part of my presentation and optimize it and put my name all over it and a meeting planner finds a crummy video of me rather than my sizzle reel and so there's a lot of backlash So there's just social media is a really dangerous space for speakers to be in
1: You can't ignore it. When you're through with a speech, one of the checklist items has to be, or several items, has to be exactly what you just said. You have to go out and explore all over the Internet to see what's out there about you.
3: Yeah. I have a social media assistant named Shannon who's been with me for three years, and uh, she's part-time, and you know, I've really trained her uh, to be my social media person. I know there are some social media gurus who uh, are much more hipster than I am who are going to tell you, you have to tweet every tweet you send. Man, I don't have time to tweet, right? Uh, I'm producing videos, putting videos up on the internet. I'm writing a blog. I've got to optimize all this stuff, I've got to put it all out there. in nsa you you do what works for you you don't listen to everybody else who tells you the gospel that you, you have to personally tweet everything so in the process of training her she's my eyes and ears on the internet i do engage with people as they engage back because we ask a, a lot of questions to get engagement but part of her job is to be my eyes and ears for our business uh, to make sure that it's always a positive footprint and uh I teach a lot about social media in my programs, and I would say to speakers, don't get in a fight with someone on social media. Uh, If someone is in a fight with you, either let it die and walk away or take it offline. Find them and phone them. That's the same advice I would give a corporation. You find them and phone them and find out what their beef is and make it go away. I've seen corporations destroy themselves by engaging and trying even even thanking someone for a positive comment leads to 500 trolls saying we hate you
1: excellent thank you
3: pleasure to be here
1: time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal well when things didn't go quite as planned
4: Uh, uh, oops
0: My name is Michael Hoffman, and one of my oops moments, one of my favorite moments, was in front of an audience whom I had been with for about a year several times. This is maybe my third presentation to them, and uh, we are about to finish the presentation. We're about 30 minutes into it, and I had had a very bad back for a long time, to the point where it would spasm, and I would be down for the count. But it always gave me a warning shot across the bow. I would get a, a twinge or the, where I, I recognize this is going to be bad. Well, I'm doing a presentation in front of an audience of about 300 leaders, and it starts to let me know, Oh my gosh, this is going to happen, and I'm watching the clock, and I've got an hour left, and I get the shot across bow about, about 30 minutes out, it's going to be bad. I can tell it's going to be bad. I'm tensing up, I'm tightening up, and sure enough, uh, I'm in my last story, and that sucker goes, Jack, and my back spasms so bad that my rib popped. It literally, it it didn't break a rib, but it but it. it Pushed it out of alignment. It was it was painful to where I got my last words out. Where I basically said, "Thank you, oh God." And I start to walk down the middle of the room, and it looked like I was walking down an escalator. <laughs> it was one of those things to where by the time I'm in the middle of the room, I am literally crawling on the ground trying to get to the back. They thought it was part of the routine. People are laughing and they're they're applauding, and it was a great finish. Thank God I finished right, but they had to drag me to the last to the last ten feet to the back of the room, and it was so bad so painful that when that sucker went... I I would laugh hysterically. You know when you're past pain and you're into euphoria? I was crying and laughing hysterically. They dragged me to the back of the room. They found out what was going on. And I think the the thing that was most impressive with the story is the drugs that showed up from that audience, (laughs) once they knew what was going on, they they were wonderful. But I have to tell you, we covered the gamut of the pharmaceutical experience. I'll tell you. Uh, That is my oops moment I will carry with me forever
1: hey this is Mimi Brown and my oops moment was delivering a talk actually for a vision board workshop and I was wearing an all-black suit with a black top underneath it and my fly was wide open with a pair of white undies let's just say it was a little drafty in there that day and one of my friends happened to be in the audience and she said to me I didn't know how to tell you I was like well that's something you just stopped the show for but that was my oops moment And the show must go on.
5: Hi, this is Stephanie Angelo, SPHR, SHRM, SCP. I had a one-night, overnight keynote address at a domestic violence conference. Today I got ready for my presentation and I was dressing myself, got the blouse out of the closet and laid it on the bed and took the trousers off the hanger and stepped into them and they fell on the floor, which was a little bit annoying because there was some hair and stuff on the floor. I pulled the pants up again and they were just really loose around my waist and I was so thankful for that because I've been trying to lose like five pounds for a really long time pulled the pants up for a third time and they went up and up and up way past my chest line and then I had this horrifying realization I had packed my husband's pants and I thought oh no oh no what do I do what do I do I had nothing else to wear with me Fortunately, there was a belt in my suitcase, so I put the belt through the loops and wrenched those pants as high and as tight as they would possibly go, but they looked ridiculous on me. So I went to the presentation, and people were looking at me up and down and kind of sniggering among themselves, and I know what they were thinking. This is our keynote presenter? So about 10 minutes into the presentation, because it was a domestic violence conference, I was talking about how this is my second marriage. I'd been in it at that point about 10 years, and it's much more happy than my first marriage was. We are so happy and so close that, ta-da, here I am wearing his pants. And they roared with laughter. It finally gave them the relief that they needed and took them out of the suspense of, why in the world would I dress so weird? So we had a lot of fun with it the rest of the day. I had comments from people like, so who dresses you? Or fashion statement, huh? And my favorite one of the day, well, who wears the pants in your family?
0: It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schifflebein.
6: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Jill's GC Bites. This is Jill Schifflebein, and on this episode, we're going to talk about how you can take an interview opportunity, say you're interviewed on a podcast, and turn it into dozens of pieces of content that you can use in your marketing. Because you know what happens? Most people I know when they get interviewed on a podcast, when it comes out, they share a link on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on social media, maybe they put a link in their email or on their website, and then it dies. It is not stretching. The distance for you, and you're not utilizing it to your potential. But after this episode, darn it, you're gonna be. Now let me say this right up front: you're probably going to want to go to the resources page after, and there's one for every episode. If you haven't been checking it out, do that. It is b i t . l y forward slash Jill's Juicy Bytes. B y t e s again. b i t . l y forward slash Jill's Juicy Bytes. Every technology, every resource. I I mention on this and any other episode is going to be on that page for you to reference so definitely go check it out. Now, Back to the teaser here. I said, if you have a podcast and you're just promoting it via social media, you do this interview with a rock star and you're like, wow, this is great. I had so much fun. Check out my cool interview. Well, you know what? Not a whole lot of people are going to click and check out a full podcast interview right there on the spot. We need to make it into digestible chunks, content that people can actually digest in a single glance, in a single sitting with very minimal time that teases them to, wow, maybe I do want to listen to the full thing. So here is my grand and plan for repurposing your content when it comes to a podcast interview that you have done. Now, let me say a disclaimer. I'm going to give some technology here. I am not getting special treatment from these companies at all. I'm not monetizing this at all. I'll give you some links and I have connections at these companies. I'm just here to help serve. I do get tracked from Zoom, which I'm going to tell you about just because I'm Budsworth their CEO and we're experimenting behind the scenes on some stuff, but no. Nothing is monetized. So these are genuinely services that I have used for years and I think they freaking kick butt. So that being said, let's dive right in. So you have a podcast interview. This awesome person says, Speaker, you are brilliant. I want to have you on my podcast. And you, Speaker, say, Heck yeah, I'd love to do that podcast. Alright, so then you get a link, you have a recording of some sort. First thing you need to do is this, is say, hey awesome podcast host, would you be okay if we actually did this interview via video? Because I'd like to repurpose it to help promote both you and me in other forms after the podcast is done. If they don't say yes to that, well then that's fine, hopefully they will. If they do, use Zoom. Zoom is the best Reasonably priced video conferencing software that I have found out there and I've tried many, in my opinion, way better than Skype, way more reliable, way more easy to use. And I'll give you a link again on that page that I talked about earlier but I use that if the host says you know what no we're just doing audio this is a format I've done it for years like this you say not a problem at all thanks for responding and then what you do is you set up your own camera that is actually recording you during the interview so yes it's one side and it's just going to be you on the video but you can still use that and repurpose it which is stellar and I'm going to talk to you about how So after this video interview is done and you say, wait, wait, I just did this video, but isn't this an audio podcast, Jill? Well, of course it is. But with any video file, you can extract the audio. So it's silly not to just do it in video in the first place if you're able to. So what you do is you get that video file. You can extract the audio, which the podcast hosts will obviously do for their stuff. And then what you do is you send that to a transcription service and get that baby transcribed. I like to use rev.com, R-E-V dot C-O-M. It's a buck per minute and I get my stuff turned around in 12 to 24 hours, sometimes less. It freaking rocks. Use them all all the time. And what you're doing with that transcript then is when you get it, you look at it and you'll see the questions that were asked of you. Well, let's say in a 20 minute podcast, you have about five questions at least that were asked of you. Well, those are magically going to be pointed out in that transcript. You'll be able to see when they are asked and you know what? Each one of those questions can turn into extra content. Now you have that transcription. Each one of those questions, your answer from the transcript can absolutely be a blog post. You add a little intro, a conclusion, clean it up to make sure it's good for the written words since you did speak it earlier. But instead of recreating, let's say 500 words from scratch, you're actually only recreating, or sorry, not recreating, but producing about 20% new stuff. It's a huge time saver. It's a way to smartly use your time and resources. And if you have an assistant, this is something that they can easily do because the bulk of your content is yours and already done for them. You could also then have those questions as separate tiny videos, more micro videos, where there may be one to three minute videos that you put on your website, on your YouTube. You can use this stuff for email content and again, always linking back to the full podcast if people want to listen to it. You can also do some screenshots and do Instagram features and images, mini audio excerpts that you can send out to your list. So many different things that you can do. If you do everything I just said for five questions, you'll have 25 additional pieces of Repurposed content. Holy cow, that's a ton! All from a single podcast interview. All right. My time is up here and I just threw a lot at you. So what I'm going to do on bit.ly forward slash Jill's Juicy Bites, I'll give you the link to Zoom. And if you're serious about it and you want to talk to a sales rep, I have a guy that I put people in touch with directly. Again, it's not commission for me. I just like them and I'm willing to hook any NSA person up with that because that's what we do for each other in NSA. Then I'll give you the link to rev.com. And I'm also going to throw in an image that I call my repurposing chart that literally visually walks you through everything. Everything I just talked about. So thanks for letting me join you. I can't believe we're over halfway done in this VOE season. It's been so cool bringing Juicy Bites to you. Hope you've liked it. Reach out. would love to hear from you at Dynamic Jill. Cheers.
0: Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President, John Molador, for our monthly conversation.
1: This month, we talked to the president, Dr. John Moller, about the power of story. Everybody has a story, but how do they get their story out there, and why do people care? How do you reach audiences? I think that's part of the discussion. Dr. John, is always fun to have this conversation with you. The power of story, what's your story? Do you share your story when you speak?
7: Pretty much I do, and here's why. The research coming out of the neuroscience area shows that brains love stories. They love oxygen, obviously, but they also love stories. And so stories are huge in terms of if you want to make an impact with your audience. And the reason we think that is, is one, it was the first form of how you communicated history, culture, morals, so as people gather around before they had the written word, they would tell the story. And so the stories then shaped the community or shaped the culture. And we think that what probably happened is because of the stories, a way to memorize or to remember, it got filed in different parts of the brain and in doing that and then repeating it. That's how cultures move forward communities move forward. The power of story then allows you then to connect with an audience. And if your story can have information, it could have a moral, it could have some ideas on how to conduct yourself or how you might even conduct, if you will business, that's the huge power of story. And all of us come to NSA, with a different story. And that sort of makes our association powerful in that regard, because each one of us has a unique story. And so just as a side note, one of the things, rather than asking, which is so typical of our association, oh, so what do you speak on, (laughs) is what's your story? How do you come to be here it's fascinating when you learn about people's background and that's what makes our association so rich and I think the more we can find out other people's stories one you're going to remember it easier because we know, like I just said, that you get the information, you file it in different parts of your brain, and then you get to access it. So it may be filed in an emotional center. It may be in an intellectual center. Again, I'm overgeneralizing there. But you get the idea that it gets placed in different parts of your brain. And in doing that, your audience then is being engaged more than if I just gave you straight facts. And then you're going to confuse those facts over time. But It's like, oh, I remember... You know, Kate's story where she came from the Northeast, and then she came down to Texas, and she got into this, and then she got into sports. So as you learn the person's story, you actually have some pretty cool insight into them as individuals. That's the power of story in my my mind.
1: And when you tell stories and you have an audience... And and you're right. I think it's so powerful because they'll remember that content is so important. I always say content is king, but it would be nothing without the story to match it. You have to be careful, don't you, that you make it about your audience, even if it's your stories, making the points, making the analogies. You still have to take the time to perfect those stories. Am I right?
7: Absolutely. And so you've also heard the old adage about, you know, this is very, very old in our profession, but it's like, oh, start with a joke. And you could see this time people would tell a joke and it would land so flat because it's like it was a joke that had no connection to the audience, no connection to the topic. And we're also seeing the movement because of our sensitivity now to all the different groups is saying, tell a story that has humor in it or tell a story that connects you to the audience. That's the critical thing. It's about them. It's, it's, it's And again, here's the other story. Oh, it's all about them. Well, yes and no. It's about them, but it's also about us because we have to be thinking about them. They're thinking about us. And so there's this interesting dynamic and energy that then are a way to interact with one another. And so, yes, it's got to be focused on them, but I also have to then use my craft. I have to use my thoughts. I have to be able to connect to them. So, yes, my story or the point of my story has applicability to them. Otherwise, uh, the colleague of mine says, you're not making any room for them in your talk or your presentation i i think you have to make room for them invite them in and that's power of story that's power of setting it up
1: yeah setting it up correctly do you have a favorite storyteller uh, 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 even if it's an author
7: or a speaker um i'm a big mystery buff i love mysteries so any good mystery writer, I'm a huge fan of theirs. Harlan Coben, Robert Craze, I love the stories that they do. Stephen King I admire mm. because he takes sort of this, these common things like a car or a dog and sort of scares the crap out of you. Can I say crap? Scares, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, scares you <laughs> because it's like an incredible uh, mind Uh, In terms of that, Lee Child, I love his work. Um, Stuart Woods, I love just if I need sort of like a quick, fast, uh, whatever you know, it's boom. I can sort of rip right through it. James Hall, so again, I love I love those writers. Um, I love uh, obviously, believe it or not, the writings of Einstein and people who write about Einstein um, because there's story there and myth. And that's the other thing I love doing is busting some of the speaking myths that are out there.
1: <laughs> busting some of the speaking myths, I love it. We have that in common. I, I I've read everything by Stuart Woods and Stephen King has a great book for for people listening called On Writing, and yep. it's about how he crafts that. How, as you mentioned, he takes an ordinary moment and turns it into something extraordinary, weaves it into a, a an amazing tale. He's done that with so many of his his books, and I bet yep, there are people. Yeah.
7: Love that on the writing. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. You know, and again, certain things stick with you from that. Like he talks about, you need to be using the adverbs a lot. Well, he's not a huge fan of adverbs. And so his writing is, he pairs it down. And so it has power. He doesn't use the adverb to blow it up. So, yes, great book. Love that book.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Mr. President. We'll talk again next month.
7: Thank you, Kate. Appreciate it.
1: One of the things we talk about in the NSA and the National Speakers Association is how much we value the, the service and the incredible acumen of so many of our speakers who get to the Hall of Fame level. How do you become a Hall of Fame speaker, which is such a big distinction? Joining us now is Waldo Waldman. He's CSP, CPAE, so he is one of those Hall of Fame speakers. He's a motivational speaker he's a leadership consultant he's the founder of the wingman foundation he's a decorated fighter pilot a retired air force lieutenant colonel and combat veteran and as you know his story, he's flown 65 combat missions he's the author of never fly solo waldo thanks so much for popping on
8: Oh, you got it, Kate. Great to be here.
1: So let's talk about becoming a Hall of Fame speaker. First of all, the road for you to becoming a Hall of Fame speaker and what that meant to you when you got that designation.
8: When I went to my first NSA meeting, uh, annual convention, around 15 years ago, I distinctly remember the CPAE event. I distinctly remember the people that I met. I sat in the CST program on the criteria to make your CST, and I made a commitment at that beginning when I first started to achieve excellence in our profession. I think for any of us, regardless where you're starting, To achieve such a thing as the CPAE Hall of Fame, to become best in class, it takes an inordinate amount of focus, and an inordinate amount of effort and passion, and to set a marker in your future to say, I'm going to get there. And uh, that's what I did. And it was small, incremental, painful steps, but I eventually got there. And I think it's important also to know that I didn't just say I wanted to be a CPAE. I said to myself, let me be the best possible speaker I can be. And I think when we do that, the people will show up, the opportunities will happen, and uh, they'll, they'll be presented to us and we'll eventually become nominated and eventually you get the CPAE. I, I don't think we should just say, I want to get the CPAE. Be maniacal about being your best and eventually that'll happen.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you said there too. Painful steps. When you say painful steps meaning from the very beginning of learning the craft, doing things that you knew you do did well, but trying to make them really work for you and speaking. Is that part of the painful steps?
8: Absolutely. And you know what works what what worked yesterday isn't working today or why yeah. may not necessarily work today. We have to be relevant. I mean look at video. Look at how websites are changing. Our audiences want shorter, more precise content. They want more viable, unique brands. So you have to evolve. You have to be willing to accommodate the the market. And I think some CPAEs today, if they don't remain relevant, they're they're also going to become defunct. I always say when we get these awards, be it CSP or CPAE, whatever it is, we have to continuously earn our wings. The profession is commanding it of us, not demanding it of us. And more importantly, our prospects and clients are. So we have to go through those painful steps to change our marketing, to improve our platform skills, to get the coaching necessary to refine our craft and improve our weaknesses and augment our strengths. So it does take work and effort, and I think any CPAE that does get inducted has demonstrated that over a long period of time in a unique, differentiated, market-savvy way.
1: How many CP approximately how many CPAEs are there?
8: Over 230 or so have been inducted into CPAE uh, CPAE Hall of Fame, which, by the way, stands for uh, Council of Peers Award for Excellence. That's what it stands for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a little over 170 or so living today. Unfortunately, every year we lose them as, as, as we all get older, right? And in right. case you didn't know, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, Colin Powell, they're all uh, CPAEs as well. But sometimes... That young man or woman or seasoned veteran will take the stage and you will say, wow, I barely knew about her or him. But that's what we try to do on the, on the selection committee. That's what we try to do is bring folks in who may be flying under the radar but to have a great brand, a message, delivery, professionalism, collateral materials, it all comes together. And uh, don't think just because you're quote-unquote not well-known or have a New York Times bestseller or haven't done main stage at NSA that you aren't uh, a worthy candidate to be nominated for CPAE. We want to know what the market thinks, how busy you are, how relevant, how professional you are. There's a whole bunch of uh, different criteria that come into play.
1: Yeah, so speaking of that, uh, the criteria I'm, I'm certain based on what you've said always gets looked at and you might tweak something what is the, some of the other criteria of getting your CPAE
8: there are five buckets one is message the other is presentation delivery next is experience then there's professionalism and then collateral material. And I don't want to get too into detail with all of these, but the key is to what I uh, what I call uh, emulate excellence. Somebody when they get that CPAE, you want to look at that person and say, "Wow, I want to be like him or her." They're congruent on the platform and off. They have integrity. Their marketing and websites are, are unique and viable. If you have an old video or no video on your website, mm. if you uh, you're great on the platform, but if you don't demonstrate that unique marketing savviness, uh, that amazing unique look that's different and relevant, you're probably not going to be considered. Uh, your message has to be unique, distinct, not copied. Uh, have a unique brand as well, uh, and then also experience. Uh, you know, we want to have. Folks- that are in NSA that have been, I think it's at least five years. I, I need to double check that, but I'm sure it's uh, that. But you have to have a, a stage time, air under your rear, as I like to call it in the military mm-hmm. uh, phraseology. You, you have to have experience on the platform and, and demonstrate it through your professionalism and your interactions within NSA and then uh, also uh, uh, in, in your civilian life as well. You know, emulate that professionalism
1: 24-7. All right. CSP Hall of Fame speaker, Waldo Waldman. Thanks so much.
8: Absolutely. Make it a great day.
1: We're here again with Dave Lieber for One Minute Power Thoughts on writing and creativity. This time, how to edit. So critical, isn't it?
9: Yeah. You know, the way I used to edit, of course, was I'd write something and then I'd read it from the top to the bottom and I'd be done. But then I realized that's just going to miss everything. So I developed a system of four or five stages that I'll share with you. Of course, when I'm done writing something, I do read it from the top down several times and I fix it on my screen. But then I will actually uh, print it out on a piece of paper and look at it with a red pen and I'll correct it on a paper form. And it looks totally different than it did on the screen. Mm -hmm. believe it or not you find a lot of stuff then I'll put those changes in and then I'll go from the bottom up and I'll make each paragraph on my computer much bigger than it should be so each paragraph stands by itself out of context I'll go all the way up and I'll find a lot more things then I'll read it aloud and then when I think I'm done I'll send it to myself and I'll read it on my cell phone and I'll read it on a small screen which is how a lot of people will read it and I'll find even more stuff and when you go through all those steps you end up finding just about everything wrong. You smooth it out. You don't have wasted words and your writing is really more professional.
1: So that's kind of like GPS. Just think of going in all directions and then you've got the Dave Lieber method down. The
9: GPS editing style. I like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll be back. Thanks, Dave. Next month for another one minute power thoughts on writing and creativity with Dave Lieber. All right, we're here with Lauren Midgley, and she's all about time, sort of. She's written a book called It's 6 a.m., and I'm Already Behind. How many people feel like that, that it's early in the morning, I have a list that's so long, and I I don't think I can tackle the list, so how do I get to the end of the day, and how do I accomplish all that I want to accomplish? Lauren, thanks for joining us, and you know it. it, This is a, a productivity time. All of that is very, very important for
4: speakers, but yet it is an impossible thing to tame, right? How do we tame it? That's the $64,000 question. How do we tame it? Because at the end of the day, we want to get stuff done, but we want to feel better about what we've accomplished. Thanks for having me on. So how do we feel better? By intentionally working on what we need to be working on. How do you decide what you need to be working
1: on? How do you make that list and cull it down? I mean, I've got a dog I have to walk. I have um, kids I've got to drive to school, but i got to do my one sheet. My website apparently needs more work, and I need a new video. And, oh, by the way, I've got five proposals I have to put
4: together. So, Kate, it's life. We know that we have a ton of tasks that just come at us. Some we know that are coming at us. Some we don't know that they're coming. And we know that we have many things to do every day. We go to bed at night, we probably are thinking about all the things that we have to do the next day. But in reality, all that we get, when we wake up, all that we can really affect is that day and what we get done. And so one of the things that we have to evaluate truly is looking at what are the high impact tasks that we need to do? What really matters? And I have uh, five favorite words and my five favorite words are what matters most right now. Okay, I notice you definitely deliberately said right now. Why why right now? Because again, we we can we can plan for tomorrow, we can plan for next Friday, we can plan for next week, and we all do. But in reality, what are we going to accomplish? in this day could be even in this hour what's most important right now and that we stay you know intentionally focused on that so if you take stay intentionally
1: focused but you have this long list, do you advise that you cut the list down, focus on the one task? How do you still have a
4: life and don't lose your mind? (laughs) Well, first of all, the important thing is, one, having a life. Second thing is keeping your mind, because we all need our mind to work, right? Um, But, you know, and everyone, I call it, everyone has their own recipe. But I do believe that we do need that to-do list. Most people have some sort of to-do list. And the question is, how long is it and what you call it? So, for example, do you call it your daily to-do list and it has 100 items on it? I can guarantee you, Kate, you're setting yourself up to fail. So, let's reframe it. Let's call it something else. And let's say that it is the master list, the mind dump, doesn't matter what you call it, but it's things that you want to get out of your head, you want to write down, you want to have it in a place, and really it's a capture tool where you're capturing, here's all the things I just don't want to forget. And P.S., back on the topic of our mind, our mind is really better for problem solving than storage. And so, so if you take all those things that are in your mind, what you need to get done, you capture it in whatever way you do, either paper or electronic. The next big decision point is thinking about, okay, of that list, what do I really need to focus on either today, this morning, in the next hour? What matters most right now? And if people do that, what happens? If people do that, what happens, it, it, it helps them to, let's say, prioritize a little bit more of what's really most important. And I think, you know, you alluded to it that, you know, do we manage time? Is it really something that we can do? And I believe that what we are managing really is our energy and our attention. So in the next hour, I need to work on my website and I need to block out the time in order to do that. So I need to make sure I have the energy for it, that you know I'm I'm ready to go with it. And I also have the ability to focus on it and put my attention on it. Um, if I still have my email up and my phone's still on, my office door is open, I'm going to be distracted. So I had good intentions. Yes, yes, in the next hour, I was going to work on my website. But what happened was, I I hadn't controlled the environment. I hadn't figured out how do I really give it my best hour to work on that website with my energy and my attention. And when I say energy, I really, I'm talking about just either physically and mentally. So physically, if I need a glass of water or I need a snack or something while I work on my website, then great, you know, have that there. If I need to get in the mental mind space of creativity, because I really need to think about my words, my messaging, everything that I'm trying to market. You know, what am I? What am I trying to accomplish with my website? If I am still thinking about all the little to-dos and the minutia and the tasks, and I'm thinking about uh, all the details. I might not be in my creative mind moment, if you will. And so what do I need to do to switch that over and get creative? I may need to take, I call it a little bit of detour. So let's say I wanted to start working on my website at 10 a.m. And I was blocking out from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And I kind of get started and it's rocky. Um, You know, it's a blank sheet of paper. I can't figure it out. I'm sitting at the keyboard and nothing's coming to me. I may need to allocate maybe about 5 or 10 minutes take a detour of getting my mind out of that minutia in the details and get it over into creative space. For you, Kate, it might be you might need to plug in uh, your iPod uh, or some music and just kind of reframe your brain, get things going. You know, just kind of clear everything out. For me, it might be I need to you know click on to some meditation music and and just clear the brain because what I'm trying to do intentionally is get into that creative space to accomplish that task. Do you think a lot of people? skip that step and that's part of the problem? Absolutely. What happens is we have intention and we just jump right in and we don't think about our energy and our attention and so we do we spend the hour we work on the website but is it our best work? And so it, it may or it may not be and so my suggestion is you know if I have an hour I want to make it my best hour to work on it and at the end of that hour I really want to walk away with something being accomplished now I may not have it all done. That's okay, but did I give it really the best hour that I could? And it may be it was fifty minutes, five oh because I took ten minutes to kind of get my environment, my you know my drink of water, my snack, and you know a little bit of music and switch and flip me over into that. Because here's what happens. Here's what we do. We start, we try, we jump in, we have intention. We kind of do a half you know what job, right? We have to go back to it. And in reality, it might take us three hours to get the job done instead of the one hour. And that's the the delta, the change of, of saying, okay, how can I make this better? Lauren, thank you so much.
0: Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience.
1: What a pleasure to be joined by Diana Buer. She's a Hall of Fame speaker, CSP. Check this out. Author of 47 books. Published by Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, McGraw-Hill, just to name a few. Published in 60 foreign edition translations. Incredible. And she's got clients that consist of more than one-third of the Fortune 500. She must be exhausted. Diana, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be with you, Kate. So I think there is power in story, and we're talking about that, whether it's business, whether it's personal, a combination of both, and it's particularly in writing, I think you're always searching for that story, and you've told a lot of stories. So let's go back to the beginning and your story. How did
10: you start off with that very first book? What did it take? Well, it's not glamorous, actually, I just was looking for a way to make a living and stay home with small kids. <laughs> I wrote an art actually, I wrote an article and sent it off to publication and they said, "Can you turn this into a book?" <laughs> It was just that simple, and I realized that was a fluke. That most people, you know, work at it for years and years and years to get the attention of an agent. But that's how it started, and so I published that one directly by the editor coming to me. But then I decided at that point I was going to go back and get my master's degree, and I got a master's in English literature, and then had a specialization in creative writing. And my master's thesis was a novel, and so then I then I went out with that novel and got. a Literary agent at that point, and she said, Sure, I can sell this. And so she sold that novel. So then I was publishing in both nonfiction from that article that the editor had come to me with and also from the novel that the literary agent had placed. So I was working in both fields.
1: So you go from that to then all of a sudden you fast forward 47 books. When you write, you obviously, you have a system. Do you have an idea of the story you have in mind? You center so much, of course, around communications. So I'm sure there are people that look at you and say, oh my gosh, how do you get 47 books? Is there that much to say out there? And the answer is, there must be, right?
10: Right. I actually look at the market first. Communication is first a big umbrella. You know, it's, mm-hmm. everything from you're talking about mass communication in organizations, people don't talk to each other, to personal communication, to relationships. So it's very big, and I work in the business communication and personal skills cross functional communication and teaching writing business and technical writing and coaching presentation skills etc. But I start with an editor coming to me saying, "We have people who are asking for this. We have book buyers at Amazon wanting a book on this. I've had them even bring me a title and say, "Can you write a book to go with this title?" Wow. Or the agent. That's the benefit of having agents. Agents are circulating with the publishers and they frequently come and say, "We have a publisher who wants to publish a book on this title, and they want an expert in this field. Will you write it? So that's what I look for. I also, as a consultant, going into big corporations with a huge problem they want solved, and I think, ah, if this, you know, if Lockheed wants this problem solved, there's probably a lot of large corporations who have the same problem. So I see what my clients are struggling with. So I don't go out saying I just felt about this topic and I want to ride on it. Most of the time it happens the other way. What is the market telling me there is a problem with? And then I go back and say, well, what do they need as a solution? Now, the solution is part of my story because the client and the market may not have ever thought of the solution. That's my Mm -hmm. job, to bring the solution and that part of the story. But the germ of the idea starts with the market.
1: Yeah, How tough is it, because obviously publishing has changed so much, how tough is it now to get an agent for people who are listening?
10: Oh, it's very easy now, because the job of the agent has changed so much. They are looking in a different way. We used to think of agents as they just need to shop the book, but an agent out there now is looking to help you with your entire career. Their whole position has changed not just to shop the book but to help you decide, should I self-publish? Should I go with a traditional publisher? Should I do more work in this field before I even try to publish? So they have become an all-around sort of publishing coach, so to speak. And should I do both should i self-publish this and go to a major publisher for this and in what order so they're looking for people with a platform to become your lifetime publishing coach so they're used more and more by publishers to be their middle manager
1: <laughs> so, so it's better yeah. it's easier so it's different yes. yeah Yes. Wow, interesting. So then you have to know your story. You have to know what you're about, what you're, maybe it's not passionate about, but maybe what you're really super great at, and you do have a passion for it, because you have to be able to explain that. You have to know your platform.
10: Yes, you have to know what you want. It's like going into a shopping center. If you, Well, there are people who just kind of wander through the shopping center and think, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. They, they just listen to whatever the store, saw, you know, whatever song they're playing in the mall, and I wander into the store. Oh, this music sounds good me wander into the store, and they don't know what they want. Once you know what you want, then you know what kind of agent you need or if you need one at that point. Some people are looking for an agent at the wrong time, and they don't express what they need, and that's why they can't find an agent. You're never going to get an agent if you can't express to them what you need. You know, people call me frequently and say, can you help me have a few questions? And when I say, well, sure, what do you want to ask? They can't form a question. Well you can't you can't find an agent just like you can't get a publishing coach. I can't coach somebody if they don't know, you know, what they want to ask. I can't give advice if the person doesn't know what question they have. But it's easy to find an agent if you seem literate and articulate on the phone and say, This is what I have and this is my platform and I'm trying to find out whether I should self publish or whether I should go this way and this is my goal in my career and then they can help you and it's easy to find an agent in that case
1: yeah wow so you have to know that absolutely books are they dead the old form of books carrying the book around it seems like diane i gotta tell you i see a lot of people with books maybe i travel too much
10: that trend is coming back there was a time when the new play thing was the device But print books are coming back. There was a time when e-books were the thing. Sales for the last three years of e-books are going down. People just don't want to give away their print book. It's not the same as having a print book in your hand. You can make notes, go back through it. And I know you can do that with an e-book. You can highlight with an ebook and print those out. But the research has been done, the different studies have been done for the last three years. And the sales figures, the actual sales figures, tell us that e-book sales, they were steady in 2013. They've gone down in subsequent years, 2014 and 2015, sales on ebooks are going down print books are going up
1: yeah how about that there's a story that circulated that you read every single book on writing in the library in one of the libraries is that true
10: On writing, when I started to write the book, the very first book on how to write, I went to the library. This is way back in the day when you couldn't get them on the Internet. I actually went to the library and checked out about 50 or 60 books in the back seat, piled them in the back seat of my car, to learn how to write. You know, literary marketplace, um, writer's market, all of those books, how to write a greeting card, how to write articles, and read through about 50 or 60 books in a matter of a month and learned how to write. That was before I went back to school to get my master's degree in in writing, creative writing. Yes, I did
1: wow. that. Wow! <laughs> yeah, that's determination. That's for sure. So, if we if we boil this all down, the fifty or sixty books, the month that you took to read, getting an agent, starting off, jumping in, coming up with your first book, and fast forward to now, what's been your greatest moment to you? Your proudest moment in speaking and coaching people, everything. What's the number one moment for you? So far,
10: I think it was publishing a novel. I don't know why that stands out so much more so than nonfiction. But it was publishing that first adult novel. There was just much more respect, <laughs> respect from college professors, literary <laughs> professors. It was like, oh, oh you wrote a novel. I mean, there's just there was just something about that. I don't know. And being also being represented by the largest. Publishing literary agent in the world, ICM. That those two things, and even if I, I don't, I'm not. I don't work with that agency anymore. Uh, after about ten years there, I decided to move on when my agent retired from there. But that just seemed to be an accomplishment re- respected by everyone. So those re- those re- good feelings.
1: So um, when you go to a party or out somewhere, do, does everybody come up to you and say, "Hey, I have an idea for a book"? <laughs> yes.
10: And even in your audiences when you speak, people are always saying, You know, I'm gonna write a book when I have time, as if there's nothing to it. People are saying, you know when I get around to it, when I have time I'm gonna write a book. And of course all of us as speakers who've written books know that it's more than when I have time.
1: <laughs> yeah, you gotta make the time, that's for sure. Well we thank you for making the time for us, Diana Boer. What a treat. Thanks so much for coming
0: on. Thank you, Kate. I loved it. Here's Kate Delaney with If You Wanna Get Heard.
1: One of the best examples of creating what I call a wow has to be the success that CSP Judson Lipley had when he came up with a brilliant idea that
11: exploded all over YouTube. So I started speaking back in 98 the 98, 99 year, and in early 2000 came up with an idea to help show how things change. One of my early concepts is that life is change and kind of the whole serenity prayer of learning to accept the things that you cannot control and uh, letting go. And so I came up with a concept to show how dancing changes over the over time, kind of the last 50 years of popular dance moves to illustrate that it doesn't mean that the old moves are bad, just you always have to be prepared because something else will be coming down the pipeline. And so I began performing the Evolution of Dance over and over and over, over and over and over and over and some students from a school that I had spoken with wanted to do it for a talent show and so they asked me if I would post a video on my MySpace page so they could watch the video to practice the move and I was like, okay, how do you do that? And they're like, well, we don't know. (laughs) So I went to MySpace, which was the number one social media site at the time, and looked around at some of the other bands that had videos. And there were two different sites that you could upload a video, copy the embedding code, and then put it in your MySpace. And one was called Video Egg, and the other was called YouTube. And user interface on YouTube was just way easier than Video Egg. So I went onto YouTube. Put the video up, copied it, put it in my MySpace, and then kind of put it out of my mind. And then about four week, four or five weeks later, uh, it started to all of a sudden go, quote-unquote, viral. And over the course of the next, what will be ten years coming up soon, uh, it's continued to just be an unbelievable sensation, so to say. So I was fortunate to have what you could easily say, the first viral video on YouTube.
1: I challenge all of you to figure out, just like Judson, what powerful story you can create in your presentations that, who knows, might make you go viral, but it's pretty tough. Now, as you know, we've been unable to successfully interview President-elect Brian Walter. There have been some audio issues, but now we have him standing by via phone from his home office. Are you there, Brian?
11: Yes, I am good to go. We just need to hurry this up. Why? Uh, the teenage kid next door has music lessons, and they can get quite loud.
1: Understood. So let's begin. What's your top tip for maximizing one speaker business? It's this phrase that pays. You ready?
11: Just say... Oh, come on, William! This isn't Braveheart!
1: Sorry, Brian, we can't hear you. We're going to have to try again next month. See you next month for another edition of Voices of Experience.